You can keep your Bibles open there. We're going to be studying this morning uh, the first six verses, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. And our theme both this morning and, God willing, this evening is the witness of Christ's church. The witness of Christ's church. Alistair Begg, a popular preacher whose sermons some of you maybe listen to online, he's fond of saying that when it comes to studying the Bible, we need to keep the main thing The main thing. Uh, We can sometimes miss the forest for the trees when it comes to studying our Bibles. And perhaps that's particularly true in the book of Revelation. We can get caught up in every detail. And the details are important, of course. But we get so caught up in them that we miss the bigger picture. We, We miss perhaps the overriding purpose of a passage of Scripture or of a book of Scripture. The purpose of Revelation is to remind us... That Jesus Christ, who has risen from death and rules the nations, that he loves his church, that he is and will protect and provide for his church all the way until the end of the world. That's the main purpose, the main message. Chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation showed us the first six trumpets. And essentially, all of those trumpets brought what we called limited or partial judgments from God on our world. Not just at a time in the future, but we believe even here and now, ever since Jesus returned into heaven, at various times and to various degrees. And as we've seen throughout the book, these things describe uh, together the last days. We believe the last days from Jesus' ascent into heaven until his coming again, that we are living in the last days. And so we've seen in the first six trumpets how partial, limited judgments are to be expected on this earth, even here and now. But the question is, what about the church in these last days? Where is the church? What is happening to it as these six trumpets blast? Will the church survive? Well, Revelation chapter 11 (coughs) answers some of those sorts of questions for us. Before we get to the seventh trumpet, we step back and we focus upon Christ and his church during the days of the six trumpets. And we shouldn't miss the forest for the trees here in Revelation 11. It is a difficult chapter, uh, considered by most commentators, maybe the, the most difficult chapter, certainly that we've come to so far in Revelation, maybe one of the most difficult of the whole book. There are a lot of numbers and details and descriptions that seem very strange upon first reading. But friends, it is still about Jesus Christ and his church. And there are four things to learn in Revelation 11, 1 to 14, about the witness of Christ's church in the last days. We're going to look at two this morning and two this evening. So in the last days, first of all, Christ's church is known and protected by God. In the last days, Christ's church is known and protected by God. Look at Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, even those first two verses raise a lot of questions 
in our minds. Perhaps chief among them, what is this temple that John is told to measure? Why would John have to measure a temple? Uh, The Jerusalem temple, which was uh, standing during Jesus' time on the earth, that temple was long gone, most likely by the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. It was destroyed in 70 AD. So there was no temple in Jerusalem when John wrote these words. So why are we suddenly being told about a temple? Well, how we answer that question is very important. In fact, Dr. Joel Beakey says, if we get these two verses wrong, we will probably get the whole of Revelation wrong. So no pressure this morning as we look at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. But there are widely different interpretations, even amongst evangelical preachers and writers, about what these verses mean and and what this temple is all about. And uh, at the risk of adding to confusion, I I do want to as clearly and simply as I can just lay out for you the two main interpretations of this text. And I do that because you may well come across other fellow believers who hold to these things. And it's good always to know what we believe and why we believe it. And there are other interpretations here by, by people that we respect, fellow Christians, And so we want to be humble in the conclusions that we come to. But I just want to make you aware of the at least one other main interpretation of these verses uh, that is out there and available. And that is a futuristic interpretation. A futuristic interpretation of these verses. And that is to say that there are many Christians who believe that almost everything described in the book of Revelation... And certainly what is described here in verses 1 and 2, that it all refers to future events, things that have not happened yet and will not happen until almost the very end of the world. This view is also known as dispensationalism. Uh, Perhaps the most famous preacher to hold to that is Pastor John MacArthur, a very gifted preacher. I'm sure you've come across him from time to time. He is a dispensational in his views. Uh, And among other things, Christians who hold to these beliefs claim that God's plan for Israel, that is for the nation of Israel, for Jewish people, that God's plan for them is very different to his plan for uh, everyone else. They believe that sometime in the future, unrepentant Jewish people across the world will have one final opportunity to repent and be saved after all other believers have already been taken into heaven. And as part of that repentance, these Jewish converts, they will build a new temple in Jerusalem and worship God in that temple. And so Christians who hold to this believe that the temple that John measures here in chapter 11 is a literal temple to be built on Mount Zion in Jerusalem in the nation state of Israel sometime in the future. By the way, today there are two mosques sitting on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And this kind of thinking has had a huge influence and impact even on American foreign policy at times. And there are all kinds of views about what is going to happen in Jerusalem before the end of the world. There are serious problems with this interpretation, friends, despite its popularity with American evangelicals in particular. For one thing, the idea that converted Jewish people will one day recommence worshipping in a temple ignores the repeated message of the gospel in the New Testament. 
which is the Jewish worship and all that went with it, is finished. And it is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many, many texts we could turn to this morning. For the sake of time, I'll give you just one at this juncture. Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 14. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, listen, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time, the last sacrifice has been made. No more sacrifices are needed. Jesus Christ has offered up the last one by his body and blood. And so that invites the question, what would be the point of a new temple being built in Jerusalem? The whole purpose of the temple in the days of Solomon and the tabernacle before that in the days of David, it was all about sacrifice. Day after day and year after year on the day of atonement, the the high priest going through the heavy curtain and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat time after time after time. And when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two, showing that no more sacrifices were needed. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, when she asked him about whether worship was to take place in Jerusalem or somewhere else. John 4.23, Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. No suggestion from Jesus that there will ever be a need again to worship at one particular temple in Jerusalem. Even if sacrifices weren't being offered there, what would be the need of that? And so for that reason and many other reasons, we believe, friends, on the, on, the base, on the balance of all that Scripture teaches, that with respect to our brothers and sisters, we have to reject a futuristic interpretation of these verses. But if this temple that John is told to measure is not a literal, physical temple in Jerusalem, well, then what is it? Well, that leads us to the second, and I believe the correct way to interpret these verses which is the symbolic interpretation. The symbolic interpretation. And this has been our approach throughout the book of Revelation. That the book of Revelation is full of pictures and numbers, which are symbols. And and eventually, and I trust maybe this is beginning to be the case for you as you read Revelation, that the more you read Revelation, the more you uh, read these pictures and, and numbers, the more that you begin to see the, the patterns coming through. I was talking to a colleague at our minister's conference last week and he was saying that he describes it, uh, that, that Revelation is like a code book. Uh, and once you crack the code, it really becomes, on the whole, very straightforward to understand. There are particular pictures and symbols that just keep appearing. The cloud always symbolizes God's presence, often his uh, presence in judgment. The number seven always symbolizes completeness. The plagues described like the plagues in Egypt during the Exodus, they again symbolize God's judgment being poured out. And this temple, friends, that John is to measure, it symbolizes the same thing that the word temple means all through the New Testament. 
And that is that it is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. The word temple simply means dwelling place. The place where God comes to be with his people. And yes, that was a physical structure for many, many decades and centuries. But you remember what Jesus said about himself, John 2 verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. In other words, Jesus himself in, his, in, the, in human flesh was, was God coming to dwell with his people. When Jesus walked on the earth to be with, uh, to, to dwell with him was to dwell with God. And what about now that Jesus is in heaven and we're here on earth? Well, 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says, if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart and in your life, you're a part of the spiritual temple of God. God does not come to be with us in one particular building. He doesn't come to be with us in one particular nation. He dwells with all his people by his spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. And so the church friends. Is God's temple today. There is no need to build a building. And have one particular group of Christians go there in the future. The temple is the church. All People who come to Jesus Christ in faith. So that brings us back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1. Why is John told to measure the temple, the people of God? Well, like most pictures in Revelation, this picture of God's people being measured is a picture from the Old Testament. And again, we don't really have time to go into the Uh, To go into examples, but if you want to note down a couple, Isaiah 28, verse 16 to 18, Jeremiah 31, verses 38 to 40. Those passages and many others in in the Old Testament speak of God measuring people, either measuring his enemies for judgment or measuring out his own people for blessing and protection. Some of you know what it is to measure out the dimensions of a house so that you know where to put up the walls, how much protection will be needed for the people who are going to dwell in your house well john measures the temple friends as a picture of god knowing and protecting and providing for his people that's what this picture is all about it's a picture of god knowing and protecting and providing for his people maybe it's not a phrase we use very much but i think there's sort of an old-fashioned phrase that you, you could say you, you have the measure of someone, which means that you know the sort of person they are. You've got to know them well. You know how they're going to react in certain situations. Uh, you know their personality. Well, in a sense, that's what the, the text is telling us here, that God has the measure of his people. He knows who his people are. And notice as well that verse 2 says that John was not to measure the outer court of the temple. In the days of Jesus, the Jerusalem temple, before it was destroyed, had this outer court where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could come and pray 
and worship God. But there was a very clear boundary line between that outer court and the inner court, which the Gentiles could not cross. And there's a bit of discussion over it here, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. But quite possibly, friends, it's a warning to us. The fact that John is told, verse 2, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. Quite possibly what is being said here is that you're either in the church or you're not. You might be very close to the church. The way that Gentiles in Jesus' day could have gone right up to the boundary line at the temple courts. But they still weren't in the temple courts. By the time that Jesus returns again to this world. It will be clear who are, who are really his people and who are not. And there will be those who call themselves churches and who dressed in the sort of clothes that they expect people to wear to church. People who preached a churchy message, who spoke in churchy language. But Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You were never measured amongst God's people. Remember what he said to the seven churches At the beginning of Revelation, we saw it over and over again, warning them about not giving in to false teaching, warning them about false professions of faith. Revelation 3 verse 1, for example, Jesus said to the church in Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're not part of the true church. And those are solemn words for anyone who calls themselves Christians or A church in our day. Because there are churches who have compromised on doctrine or morality. There are individuals who are excusing sin in their lives. Who refuse to come under the discipline of God's word and of God's church. And Jesus says here that such people do not live under the measure of protection. And of God's presence and of God's spirit as they go on in this world. They are outside. They are not inside the true temple of God. What about you this morning? Do you know with assurance that if, as it were, God gathered every single person in the world together in one big bunch and ran a measuring tape around and through all those people, what side of the measuring tape would you be on? Would you be inside, inside the bounds of the church or would you be outside? How do we know if we're inside? Well, is the Holy Spirit in you? Has he given you a new heart that's caused you to cry out in repentance for your sins? Do you have an appetite for God's word? For serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you increasingly hate your own sin and want to be free of that sin in your life? Do you increasingly find, as the psalmist said, that there is nothing and no one else on earth that satisfies your soul the way Jesus Christ satisfies your soul. Well, friends, those are all evidences that you're in the true temple of God, that you're known and loved and included in the measure of his people. But if you would answer no to those questions I've just asked, if you're someone who likes being seen at church or who is always in church, but only because you have to be or you're expected to be, If you leave this place and you have no thought of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And it doesn't enter your head the rest of the week. 
then you're outside the temple of God. You can sit here or in Brewery Lane all you want. You can give all the money you want. You can kid yourself all you want. The measuring line of God's love, mercy and protection doesn't rest upon you. You are outside, not inside the temple of God. But you can still come in. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will be one of those living stones, part of the the spiritual house that Jesus builds. You'll be amongst those who are called to witness for him in these last days that we are living in. And that's the second and final thing uh, to think about this morning. We've thought about how Christ's church is known and protected by God in these last days. And secondly, how Christ's church is empowered to witness in these last days. Christ's church is empowered to witness. Look at verse 3. <coughs> verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, we have some numbers to deal with here. 1,260 days in verse 3, 42 months in verse 2. And if you're quick with maths in your head, you'll realize that 1,260 days is the same thing as 42 months. Now, what's the symbol being communicated to us by these numbers? Well, they're telling us, friends, that the church has a mission to fulfill in this world, which is time limited. It will be brought to an end at a time of God's choosing. And these two witnesses, I believe, and again, there are other interpretations, are futuristic. Brothers and sisters would see this as literally two people, perhaps two great preachers or two great prophets who will come at the end times. So that's one interpretation. But I believe that these two witnesses are best understood here as a description of the whole church throughout the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. In the Old Testament, for someone to be prosecuted for a crime, you had to have at least two witnesses. Two witnesses verified the truth. One witness was not enough. And I believe that two witnesses here is a symbolic way of saying that the church, all the people of God, are the witnesses of Jesus Christ So first we have this picture of the temple and now we have this picture of the two witnesses. Both pictures pointing us to the church. And that's how believers are described over and over again in the book of Acts. For example, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the last words of Jesus to his apostles. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what Revelation chapter 11 emphasizes to his friends is the significance, the the importance of the witness of the church. Look at verses 4 to 6. The picture changes again. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. So witnesses, olive trees, lampstands. All pictures of the same thing. That stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood 
and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Notice how the language there very much reminds us of the witness of Moses and Elijah. That's why I read a few uh, well-known passages from Elijah's life earlier on. It's not saying that Christians will be able to literally breathe fire on their enemies. And I just don't believe that there will ever be two prophets walking the earth who are able to do that. Um, I'm sorry again to our futuristic friends, but I just don't see that happening. It didn't even happen in the days of Elijah. When Elijah was threatened by his enemies, you remember fire came down from heaven. And so what this is saying, friends, is that the judgments that Christians, that the church warned the world about, the judgments that we speak from our mouths, they will come to pass on this world if people do not repent. And this ties into the six trumpets. Those things that we saw coming from the trumpets. You know the strife on the earth and economic difficulties. And and the influence of Satan and demons upon the people of our world. As Christians we're to warn people. If you don't repent these are the kinds of things you're going to experience. And as as it were from our mouths comes the fire of God. As long as people do not repent that's what they experience. And that's why, again, the the witness of the church here is described in terms that uh, are similar to the the witness of Moses and Elijah. If you look again uh, at verse 5, fire pours from their mouth, if anyone would harm them and so forth. Verse 6, sorry, verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky. Remember, that's exactly what happened in Elijah's day. Elijah prayed that there would be no more rain, we're told, in James 5, 17. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Three years and six months is 42 months, 1,260 days. What it's saying to his friends is that the witness of the church in these last days is like the witness of Moses and Elijah in their day. We are to preach repentance. We are to warn of judgment. And we are to do so for as long as God has decided. And indeed it's not just that our witness is to be like the witness of Moses and Elijah. Our witness is also to be like the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus came saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The gospel. Urgent repentance. Imminent judgment. That was the message of Jesus. That was the message of Moses. That was the message of Elijah. By the way, how long did Jesus preach and minister on the earth? His his public ministry? Roughly three and a half years. 1,260 days. It's telling us, friends, our ministry, our witness, is to be like the witness of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Proclaim repentance. Proclaim judgment. And keep on doing it until Jesus returns. Is that something we're committed to, Christian friends? Yes, we're here in church, listening to the message 
Do we live that message out? Do people hear it from us? I wonder, is the church in general, and I include us in this, are we emphasizing the seriousness of the message we have to preach? Are we emphasizing the urgency of it enough? You can't read and study Revelation as we have been doing and miss the emphasis on judgment that this book contains. Notice verse 3. These two witnesses are wearing sackcloth. That's a sign of mourning. That's a sign of seriousness. This is not trivial. John the Baptist wore something like sackcloth. Elijah wore it as well because they had a serious message to proclaim. Repent or die. And I do wonder, and this is a thought that has come back to me several times as we've studied Jude in the summer and and now as we study Revelation, are we in danger, the church in general today, are we in danger of trivializing the gospel? Are we emphasizing what we should be emphasizing? That hell is real. That sin is despicable in the sight of holy God. That God is and will judge it. That your life is short, eternity is forever, and your days are numbered. Some Christians, some churches, those things are not being mentioned at all. It's not sinful for a church to hold social events, to invite their neighbours to times of food, chat, parties. But people can get all of that anytime they want, anywhere else. What they will not get anywhere else is a warning about the eternal danger that they are in if they do not repent of their sin. And friends, John here in Revelation is being told that the witness of the church in the last days is in some ways to reflect and echo the witness of men like Moses and Elijah. If that's what John is being told, then we're not supposed to be going out of our way to appear attractive to the world. We're to reach the world by being different from the world. We're supposed to stand out before this world. We're supposed to look foolish and sound foolish at times. We don't try to sound foolish. We don't try to be quirky for the sake of being quirky. But the reality is we will look and sound foolish if we are being faithful to the message that we've been given to preach. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is coming soon. Repent and believe the good news. Francis Schaeffer, a great Christian writer and thinker from the middle of the 20th century, he wrote a book, Death in the City. It's all about Christian witness in in what in his day was modern times, but many of the principles extend on 50 or 60 years later. And he said this, There is only one kind of preaching that will do in a generation like ours, preaching which includes the judgment of God. He goes on, People often say to me, what would you do if you met a really modern thinking person on a train and you had just an hour to talk to him about the gospel? He said, I would spend 45 or 50 minutes on the negative to show him his real dilemma, to show him that he is more dead than even he thinks, that he is morally dead because he is separated from the God who exists. Then I would take 10 or 15 minutes to tell him the gospel. He explained further, unless he understands what is wrong, he will not be ready to listen to and understand the positive. He said, I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear, simply because we are too anxious to get the answer 
without having a man realise the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt in the presence of God. There's a lot to think about there. Churches can spend hundreds and hundreds of hours and pounds organising and coordinating and running events, youth outreach, special meetings, whatever. I'm not saying there isn't a place for some of these things. But often what passes for a gospel presentation is given a few, min- a few minutes, if at all. And it's not really the gospel at all because sin is barely mentioned and we're in such a rush to not offend people. Friends, the fire is coming down. The trumpets are blasting. The church is supposed to be warning the world what will happen if we do not repent. And yes, the burden for proclaiming these things falls particularly on preachers. But friends, we are all gospel witnesses. As you have opportunity in the situations into which God leads you, all of us filled with the Holy Spirit are to speak. And it's not easy. It's not always comfortable. It will lead to suffering and persecution to some degree. We'll think more about that this evening. But friends, time is short. 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. A symbolic way of, of telling us the end is coming soon. So use every day you have, every opportunity to solemnly and clearly proclaim what Jesus himself proclaimed. Repent and believe or refuse and be judged. Amen.